Hello and welcome to this week's podcast for The Lancet. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, July the 6th. This week I'm joined by my colleague Pam Das because the July the 7th to the 13th issue of The Lancet is a themed issue on HIV AIDS. Pam, why is it in the themed issue? All tied up with a meeting happening in Sydney. What's all that about? This is the International AIDS Society meeting. It's the fourth one. It's quite a young meeting. It's on pathogenesis, treatment and prevention and kind of arose as a result of the fact that people who work in the HIV arena felt that the World AIDS Congress has become too big, too wily, too policy orientated and so not enough of the science is being covered. So as a result of this, the International AIDS Society have started up the meetings that alternate with the World Congress and the sole purpose is really to focus on science and clinical. Pam, let's talk through some of the content. Let's start off with the lead editorial, which obviously talks about the meeting, but it also highlights other key content in the issue as well. Yeah, that's right. The editorial sort of starts off with looking at these meetings in terms of how well they're received, even though they started off with a really good reason, and that's to cover science and clinical aspects of HIV much better than the World Congress. Unfortunately, over the years, they have been criticised for their lack of scientific and clinical focus. Part of that reason is there are so many HIV meetings now in the year. I mean, the calendar is just completely full of them. And so what happens is researchers tend to present their data at these smaller meetings. And hence, when you have a big meeting like this one, you don't really get to hear much of the new advances. But talking of new advances, we should move into our content areas now. In the original research, the red section of the journal, we've got two quite large drug trials. Yes, that's right. We're publishing three phase three randomised controlled trials uh, titled Duet 1, Duet 2 and Titan. These trials are looking at a newer version of a class of drugs known as non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. And the positive things about these drugs is that uh, for patients who have exhausted all their other treatment options and no longer respond to their current treatment regimens, these new drugs are going to help alleviate that unmet need for those patients. An interesting research article too. This is looking at the link between HIV and cancer. That's right, yes. This is a new insight into cancer as a major cause of morbidity in people with HIV AIDS. What the authors have done here is conducted a meta-analysis which looks at cancer incidents in people with HIV, mostly from the US, with transplant recipients from Europe and Australia. And what they find is that the range of infection-related cancers that are associated with immune deficiency are much higher than previously thought. That's right. And earlier I spoke to one of the study authors, Professor Andrew Grulich, and I started off by asking him up until now what we knew about the link between HIV and cancer. Well, there are only three cancers which are acknowledged as being related to HIV and that they form part of the definition of AIDS, and that's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, Kaposi's sarcoma, and cancer of the cervix. But there have been a number of well-designed population-based studies over the last decade or so which have suggested that rates of some other cancers might be increased. But it has been the general consensus until now that those cancers are not associated with immune deficiency in people with HIV. So the question has been raised that perhaps they're simply due to other lifestyle risk factors in these populations rather than immune deficiency. So what was the thrust really for, for the current research? That you obviously, you've done, you've done a meta-analysis here, and it's interesting you're comparing an HIV population with a solid organ transplant population. What were you setting out to achieve? The reason we did that was to, to look at the question of what cancers might be related to immune deficiency through a different lens, if you like, from a different direction. And, and rather than just looking in the one population, people with HIV, 
in this study we aimed to compare population-based data on cancer and transplant recipients to cancer in people with HIV. And, and so that was our general approach. And how many individuals were involved in the trials that you were able to use in the meta-analysis? In the population with HIV, there were over 400,000 people with HIV, but only about 30,000 uh, transplant recipients. And in fact, data on the majority of those transplant recipients have only been published in the last 12 months or so, which is why uh, we've been doing that study recently. And in the solid organ transplants, they were mainly people, older people presumably, having kidney transplants, whereas the HIV population presumably was younger. The people with HIV were slightly younger, but the, the difference was actually much less marked than we thought it would be. The, the average difference in ages was only about five years older in transplant recipients compared to people with HIV. And what were the main findings? Well, I suppose the main finding is that we found a much broader range of cancers were associated with immune deficiency in both populations than was previously appreciated. And in addition, the range of increased cancers looked very similar in both populations. And what sort of cancers are we talking about? Most cancers that occurred at increased rates were those that with a known or suspected infectious cause. So all of the AIDS-related cancers occurred at increased risk in both populations. Um, a wide range of human papillomavirus cancers occurred at increased rates in both populations and not just cervical cancer but all the anogenital cancers and also cancer of the oral cavity and pharynx occurred at increased risk, cancer of the stomach, cancer of the liver, all of those with known infectious causes but some other cancers for which there is little evidence of an, of an infectious cause. Such as presumably breast cancer, ovarian cancer, those types of cancers. Of the epithelial cancers that occur commonly in industrialised nations, thankfully and reassuringly we found little evidence of increased risk of breast cancer or ovarian cancer. So certainly no evidence to support the idea that it's sometimes raised that, for example, breast cancer might be related to infection. We actually found fairly convincing evidence of no increased risk of that particular cancer. And what happens now? I mean, clearly there's a shift now in thinking as a result of this study. As you say, historically we were looking at three cancers relating to HIV. Now we could be looking at a much broader spectrum of cancer. I mean, clearly studies like this need to be repeated and followed up. What are the next steps, do you think, both in terms of research and what are the clinical implications? In terms of research, I think we've opened up the possibility here to, to use immune deficient populations to investigate which cancers might be infection-related. So I, I think studies such as the ones, the ones we included in the meta-analysis need to be expanded to include transplant recipients of liver transplants and cardiothoracic transplants. And in addition, additional studies should be done in populations with congenital immune deficiency who we would hypothesise would have a similarly increased variety of cancers. In terms of clinical implications, it's certainly this is an area where we, where we need further research. But in people with HIV, this at least raises the possibility that uh, as this population ages and has less problems with age-related complications because of the improvements in therapies, that cancer might become a more important cause of morbidity. And I think at an absolute minimum, our study suggests that studies of HIV therapies should be ensuring that they collect uh, good data on, on cancer to see whether in the, the randomised comparisons that are done, whether indeed uh, cancer uh, is affected as an outcome. Professor Grulick, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome, Richard. Thank you. Also, Pamela, there's an interesting viewpoint, and this is looking at prophylaxis, which is a topic that you commented on last year at the uh, World AIDS meeting in Toronto. That's right, yes. We have an interesting viewpoint on uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV infection, otherwise known as PrEP. 
So the concept here that the authors are proposing is to give antiretrovirals to people before they're infected, thereby preventing the transmission of infection. And also, Pan, a review, I think, about HIV in in a paediatric situation. We have an interesting review on paediatric HIV infection from Philip Goulder and colleagues. Now, paediatric HIV infection is a growing health challenge worldwide. But in developed countries, we have prevention programs that keep mother-to-child transmission rates at less than 2%. But in developing countries, it's a completely different story. Here, transmission rates of infection are 25 to 40%. And unfortunately, the interventions to prevent mother-to-child infections are available to only 5 to 10% of women. So this review focuses on the clinical and immunological features of HIV that are specific to paediatric infection and the formidable challenges ahead to ensure that all children worldwide have access to interventions that have proved successful in developed countries. Thanks, Pam. And let's return to the beginning, the editorial in Sydney. That's right. One of the most important things to come out of the meeting will be the Sydney Declaration, which proposes that all HIV programmes should spend up to 10% on research. Now, I'm sure a lot of people will think, oh no, another declaration, what's this all about? And is it going to really amount to anything? But I actually believe that this declaration is something that is very much needed. It's based on the concept of good research drives good policy. We're now at a stage in the pandemic where resources have dramatically increased for delivering existing interventions in places like sub-Saharan Africa. And although the funding is still insufficient, it is important that the delivery of these interventions are achieved at an optimal level. So what this declaration is proposing is that operations research be introduced into the agenda. So in addition to basic clinical, prevention, social and policy research, all the areas that HIV currently focuses on, we're now going to be adding a new dimension, which is operations research. And this is probably going to help rapid implementation of the current technologies and the new technologies that are going to come on board. So I'm quoting from the editorial now, the sort of things that the Sydney Declaration is going to help us address are things like Does the high early mortality on antiretrovirals occur because patients are entering the programs too late? Or are there underlying toxicity issues? Could lower drug doses be used to treat more people? Should antiretrovirals be started earlier to prevent more cases of tuberculosis? This declaration should address some of those questions. It should catalyse the involvement of clinicians and scientists from the developing world as the rollout of HIV AIDS programmes expands. It's imperative now that funders are not allowed any excuses to say that the best possible outcomes on treatment and prevention for people with HIV are not being achieved. And I'm hopeful that the Sydney Declaration will pave the way for that. That's a good way to end. Pam, thank you very much. Those were the highlights from the HIV issue of The Lancet, July the 7th to the 13th. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.